Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. call to confession today is Proverbs 28, verse 10. Whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into the pit, into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. The doom of seducers, those who attempt to draw good people into sin and mischief, will themselves fall into their own pit that they have created. Those who seek to lead others astray will ultimately not gain their point because it's impossible to deceive the elect. When we are too caught up in our own troubles, we don't remember that God is, after all, God. That he is sovereign over all things, and all things do work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. We sometimes join with our adversaries in the way that we oppose them. We become just like them if we forget that God is fully involved in the whole thing from start to finish. Another way of understanding this is to think of our lives as a story. And to think of this properly, we must remember who is the author of that story and who are the characters. God is the author and the creator. Everyone, which includes us, are the characters in this creation, in his creation and the story thereof. Therefore, when a character does thus and such to you in chapter 3, that character may have particular things in mind. They may be meant for your harm, But if not for your harm, they're at least meant for his own benefit without regard for you or anybody else. When he does this to you, you have to remember that the author has a particular thing in mind for you as well. And it's almost certainly not the same thing that the sleazy character in the story had in mind. This particular plot structure carries carries out through scripture multiple times and we ought to pay attention to it. The fundamental principle is this, that God, of course, cannot be mocked, and a man reaps what he sows. Of course, the ultimate example is the work of Satan in stirring up Judas and arranging for the murder of Jesus. And through that murder, Satan was the instrument for the salvation of the world, and not to mention the destruction of his own, his own self. He did not know what the effect that he had was going to do. All the characters of that story, whether it was Herod, Pontius Pilate, Caiaphas or Satan were not aware that their role, what their role was in the story that was unfolding before them. But for the author of this story, as the creator and the sustainer of all things, he wrote the story full of grace towards the people that he had called. The unsavory characters had dug themselves for themselves a pit while God had made a way for his people. This does remind us of our need to confess our sins. I invite you to kneel where you are if you're willing and able. Let's pray together. Most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we once again express our gratitude, our joy 
for this day. And this day, especially as we once again gather to hear your word, gather to extol you with our praises as we remember and reflect on your faithfulness and your goodness to your people. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who has redeemed us, reconciled us, and offered us salvation. And I pray as your spirit indwells us, that our hope and our faith will increase, that our eyes and ears of faith will be opened, and that we would be ready to quickly obey your word and to enjoy the blessing of living in your kingdom now and forever. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I want to say thank you on behalf of our family for the uh, numerous prayers and encouragement, uh, notes and um, conversations, and the flowers that were um, sent and the, those who attended in, in uh, honor of my mom as we uh, had her memorial service this last Wednesday. It was one of those, of course, as a believer, it's always one of those mixed days when you're very sad uh, because we're selfish in our loss. But when we remember where the loved one is, and uh, especially my mom and her years of illness and uh, short leg and all and weak arms, she now has two good legs to dance and uh, nice strong arms to give my dad a hug. So uh, thank you for all the encouragement that you provided uh, over the last week. And it's uh, oftentimes when we um, are faced with death, then we begin to reflect and we begin to think a little bit more about what ifs or, or uh, how life is going. And we, we uh, certainly dwell on heaven, and as Paul often did, wouldn't it be great to be there when we think about the week that lies ahead or the week we just went through or, you know, whatever that comes our way. Um, we miss those who go before us, and wouldn't it be great to be with our loved ones? Wouldn't it great be great to be with our Savior? Right? And maybe it's not just death. Maybe it was just a tough day, and we think, man, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was here right now? Have you ever had that thought? Do you ever wish you could see Jesus Christ right now? Do you ever say, man... I wish Christ was right here and give me some direction or what to do. We often are maybe jealous of Adam and Eve who daily walked and talked with Christ. Abraham made a feast and ate with Christ. Jacob wrestled with him. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, we more commonly know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, got to stand in the middle of a fiery furnace with Christ. Mary gave birth to Christ. The shepherds came and worshipped the newborn Christ. Simeon and Anna held the baby Christ and rejoiced at the coming of the Messiah. Mary and Joseph raised Christ as their own Son, The disciples were taught by and ministered along with Christ. The multitudes were fed 
by Christ. Peter, James, and John stood on the Mount of Transfiguration and witnessed Christ in his glory along with Moses and Elijah and heard the voice of God. Stephen saw Christ sitting on his throne and withstood the persecution that came. And Paul himself was taken into heaven and taught by Christ. Oh, if that could only happen for me. What a great experience that would be if we could be with Christ right now. If we could only see Christ. But then we have to remember that when all of that was happening, there were many that saw Christ, didn't even recognize him, didn't even acknowledge who he was. In fact, there were many who sought Christ, knew who he was, and so they wanted to kill him. And they did. We're told that even the demons know Christ, and it causes them to tremble. And Peter reminds us in the first chapter of his second letter that it is possible to see Christ because even though he makes reference to his time on the Mount of Transfiguration in verse 19, he says, we were there. We saw Christ in his glory. We saw the patriarchs. We heard the voice of God. And yet we now have a more sure knowledge of Christ because he has given us his spirit and it's a more sure word. It's the prophetic word confirmed by the spirit. And just prior to that, in verses 5 through 11, Peter had laid out an argument of how we can see Christ, how we can know Christ clearly and personally in our life here on earth now. Starting in verse 5, he says, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, uh, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not a recipe. It's not a 12-step program. But it's words of encouragement to let us know that by God's grace and through his Spirit... Christ is present with us even now. And it's just as if he was there talking to Adam and Eve in the garden. It's just as if he was standing in the fiery furnace. It's just as if he was teaching Paul himself. That is the Christ who is eternal and everlasting. That is our Lord and our Savior. And he is the one who is with us right now. And as we look at this, we see the first element. We want to talk about this in, in getting a clear vision 
think I titled this, The Eternal Visual Acuity. Right? Using some uh, opt- optima- optometry uh, terms here, right? Clear- clarifying or helping us to see clearly who Christ is. And Peter gives us an eye chart for seeing Christ. So you know the eye chart when you go to the optometrist, right? What's the first, what's the first thing you always see? A big E, right? The big E on the top. Well, Peter tells us that that big E on the eye chart for Christ starts, uh, is for effort. I think I put diligence in my notes, but E is for effort. Both in verse 5 and verse 10, he says, For this very reason, give diligence. Be even more diligent. So diligence, this is an important part of the believer's life. Calvin said that the life of the believer, this work of faith, is a work arduous and of immense labor. To put off the corruption which is in us, he bids us to strive and make every effort for this purpose. He intimates that no place is to be given, in this case, to sloth, and that we ought to obey God calling us, not slowly or carelessly, but that there is a need of alacrity. How often have we heard we need to be patient and give people time to get to know the Lord? And we want to be gracious and kind. But Peter and Calvin remind us, why? (laughs) Why would you want to take time Why would you want to put off getting to know Jesus Christ better? Why would you want to be slow about that? I guess if my bank called me and said, you have just had a million dollars sent here to be put into your bank account. Will you come down and sign the transfer so we can deposit it? We would say, well, I'm kind of busy right now. Let me check my schedule. Gonna, I haven't exercised for a while, so I need to build some strength. You know, it's like two miles to the bank. So I better build my strength up, my endurance. Up, up. I should be able to be there in about nine months. Right? It takes time to receive good news and to really put together a plan and a program in order to make it happen. And Peter says, hogwash. Be diligent. Be diligent in your life as a Christian. Be ardent. Be fervent. It is laborious. And if we don't recognize that, we will become lazy and slothful. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in his first letter, says in chapter 9 that he pummels his body to keep it under control. He talks about this daily fight that he has and works at it. He says the reason being is that he does not want to be disqualified as he has preached to others. And he reminds us with the, uh, the analogy of one who's preparing to run a race or a boxer who's getting ready for the fight They just don't go out and trot around the track. They don't just, the boxer doesn't just jab. 
He sees an opponent. The runner sees a prize and practices as though it is the race. Practices as though it is the fight. So that they might win the prize. So we would disagree with AI, Alan Iverson, that it's not just practice. And we shouldn't pay any attention to it. This is preparation for the real thing. This is our calling. And so we are called by the psalmist in our preparation, in diligence to make sure we hide the word of God, hide the word in our heart, that we might not sin against God. And Paul, time and again, reminds us it's this process of putting off the old and putting on the new. Putting off what's naturally there and putting on which is unnatural to us. Putting off our instinctive desires and putting on those things that are not instinctive. That takes work. It takes work to create habits. It takes work to change our mind. It takes work to know Christ. And so as we begin to look at the eye chart that Peter lays out for us here in verses uh, 6 and 7, we see the big E at the top is effort. Be diligent. And then we we move right down to the chart, right? What's the first What's the first thing? You know, we're, we're pretty good with that first line. F-A-I-T-H. Ah, we got it. Faith. I got that one. Faith is the first thing that begins our road, our work of salvation. And it should be a singular faith. There's only one God. Sole fide. Faith in Christ alone for salvation. And it must be a saving faith. As James reminds us, it's not just a faith in an obscure, abstract idea, but it's a faith in a living God who produces in us actual works each day, fruit that is produced that we might demonstrate his work in us. For if we do not have that faith, then our faith is dead. If we do not have those works that demonstrate a care for the needy, a comfort for the poor, uh, helping those in need, as James says, then our faith is dead. So we must be like Abraham, who was willing to sacrifice his only son. He held nothing back from God. Abraham was all in, and God provided the sacrifice And Stephen, once again, who was able to speak the truth when he knew it would cost him his life. And as the stones continued to keep at him, coming at him and hitting him, he didn't sue. He didn't cry. He proclaimed the truth of God, kept his eyes fixed on Christ, and was taken into glory. He knew Christ. And it begins with faith. As we move to the next line, what's it say? V-I-R-T-U-E, virtue. I don't know if you recall back to your early days of when you claimed to be, you professed Christ. And you often see this in new believers. All of a sudden they start, right? 
The old man's here and there's the natural desires. And all of a sudden there's these things that you never thought about doing. That are virtuous. Showing love, kindness, patience, gentleness. Forbearing with others who don't like you. I never thought of doing that before. Why, why would I do that? Loving my enemy? And so these virtues begin to show up. But they need to be molded rightly by the word of God. And in in reading and training for the word of God, we see that it's not just about conforming to the worldly standards, but being transformed. Metamorphosis takes place. It's a complete transformation. It's not just an adjustment of my lifestyle. It's not just a tweaking of my thinking processes. It's a whole new life. And when you really think about it, this was just a whole old death. We were enslaved. Our master was harsh to us. He was unkind. He was selfish. And over here we have a loving, gracious, merciful master who cares for us and provides all that we need. We are taking out of the cell of sin into the mansion of glory. We are taken as slaves of the father of lies. And we are now children of the father of light. It is a different life. We are redeemed. We are reconciled. And now we have hope of salvation. And so our virtues need to be molded. And it needs to be based upon that moral goodness that is the very nature of God. Paul reminded the Philippians to think on these things. That which is excellent. That is right. That is good. And we should practice these things. The things that we have learned, received, heard, and seen. They need to be practiced. They need to be worked at. We're going to see them show up. We shouldn't be surprised. We should grasp onto them and practice them more and more. So we move to the next line on the chart. K-N-O-W-L-E-D. Those G's are always hard. They look like O's and they look like C's. But we hit the G and the E. Knowledge. We get knowledge. But it's not just about getting intellectual or head knowledge. That is important. As Paul reminded Timothy to continue to study. To be that approved workman. One who rightly discerns the word of God, one who handles it correctly, doesn't just take some verse or word, extract it and throw it at people and hammer them over the head with it or stab them in the heart or the back with it. But they divide it. The word of God discerns the heart. So the word of God is powerful. We must learn to use it. We would not send our children out to run a power tool or, well, maybe we would, I don't know. But we train them on it, right? Don't, we don't just say, go drive this machine without giving them an instruction. Yeah, you know, how often do we just throw someone the word and let them do whatever they want to with it? The word of God is powerful. It is mighty. And if we've got people misusing it, it is going to have a powerful effect. For good and bad. God's word is always going to return its 
its power. And people who mishandle it will mislead people. So we need to have our virtue molded upon the moral goodness. We need to have head knowledge, but we also need to have heart knowledge. Proverbs 15 reminds us that the discerning heart seeks wisdom and knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. We need to be those who seek out wisdom and knowledge from God's word and not just the folly of the world. Next line on the eye chart is getting a little smaller. S-E-L. And then we see these three letters in a row. You know, capital F. I always trip up on that one because it looks like an E. You get enough, you did enough blur going in there, it, the line will repeat. But you guess an F. Then you got a C and an O together. C O. That's terrible. It could be two O's, it could be two C's, it could be a C and an O and an O and C. But you guess C O N T R O L. Self control. Oh, this is where it starts getting tough. As we've already talked about, putting off the desires of the flesh anger, bitterness, malice, greed, division, dissent, selfishness. Those are, those are things that we want to do naturally. And we need to begin to put on the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, hospitality, love for enemies. These are difficult things to put on. It must be worked at. They don't always, they don't always fit our moment. We don't always feel like doing them. But the Spirit always feels like producing fruit. The Spirit always seeks to glorify God. And so while my flesh, my flesh is seeking to be antagonistic against God and the Spirit, my new man My new spirit is warring against that. And therefore, we have this control issue. I'm here, I'm here, I'm here. That's what Paul says, right? I know what I'm not supposed to do, and I do it. I know what I'm supposed to do, and I don't do it. I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's a war, that's a challenge. And I know myself too often, I give in to the, I don't do it. I give in to the flesh. And Peter reminds us that that is not what it's supposed to be about. We should have a self-control that is, uh, that is uh, putting off the flesh and putting on the fruit of the Spirit. And as we do that, then we see the next, we have the doctor says, next line, what is it? P. E R S E V E R A N C. Oh, that was a long line. Perseverance. And it took perseverance to get through that line. Had to work at that one. But the perseverance that's been planted by God's word, as we remember the parable of the four soils, right? As the seed took root. Reminds us that it was a good soil and it grew up and lasted and persevered. And as it's growing, James reminds us, it's pruned by God. The trials that God brings our way, 
Not the trials that just kind of happened to show up. Not the trials that, because it was an unlucky day. Not the trials because, well, you know, the devil made me do it. The trials that God has planned for us to test our faith will produce that perseverance. Produce that steadfastness. And Job is always one who reminds us of that. So we need to be planted in God's word and we need to be willing and see that pruning that will take place. As we move down the eye chart, next is godliness. Being like God himself. And Paul reminds Timothy that godliness is profitable for all things. There's promises for, for both this life and for the next life. As we live godly here, God will use that to do things that we could never imagine. He will bring, put us at peace with people we didn't know we could be at peace with. He will bring about events and activities that we had no ability to control. He will provide the needs that we could never have earned or figured out how to do if we had three lifetimes. But not only is godliness profitable in all things, but it gives us a peace with God and with men. We can use this, God uses this godliness to reflect God's glory, reflect God's character, and Peter reminds us elsewhere that people will then accuse us of doing good. That's going to be their accusation against us. When we live godly, their accusation will be that person lives like God. Who needs, we don't need another answer. We don't need another argument for anyone who brings an accusation like that against us. Peter and John brought before the, the leaders, the Jewish leaders. And Gamaliel, was it Gamaliel? Said, hey guys, if this is from God, there's nothing we're going to do to stop it. And if it's from man, it's going to end on its own. He understood it. But they told them, they beat them, and told them to go speak no longer the name of Christ. And they walked away rejoicing to be counted worthy to be persecuted for Christ and obeyed God rather than man. Their godliness was an argument against man's false accusations. Next, we come to brotherly kindness. A brotherly kindness that is preferential to others. Paul reminds the Romans that they should love one another, giving preference to one another, being focused on what others are doing. And he reminds the Thessalonians, it's perpetual. He says, he says I've heard of your love for one another. And I don't need to talk anymore about that. All I'm going to do is encourage you to do it more and more and more. You right now, Thessalonians, Church of Thessalonica, you are the model of brotherly love. So, keep doing it. Do it more. Make it exceed even grander. And then finally, we get to that small little bottom line on the R chart. L-O-V-E. Love. So often, we put that one at the top. 
And we try to start with love. And because we don't really understand what spirit love is, that God-produced love is, we tend to mess it up and misinterpret it. But as we've worked through this eye chart and we look through these characteristics, we now understand this love needs to be an adoring love for our God. Like Stephen, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Like Abraham, all in. And it needs to be an abundant love for others. Right? That's what Christ reminded his disciples. How will they, what's the test? What's the characteristic that holds them out as the disciples of Christ? They will know you, my disciples, for your, because of your love for one another. And so we've made it through the eye chart. We've looked at the uh, different levels to be diligent that need to be added to our faith. And now it's time to review the results. We've seen it. We think, how are we doing, Doc? And there's two results, according to Peter. In verses 8 and 9, there are those that are claimed to have 20-20 vision. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are diligent to have faith and add virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love, we will clearly see who Christ is. And, and Christ himself reminded us in John 15 of another analogy that helps us understand that. That he's the vine and we are the branches. And what does it take for the branch to be fruitful, fruitful and know the vine? To abide there. And that as we abide in Christ, as the Spirit produces this fruit in us, we will abide in Christ and we will be pruned. It doesn't mean easy street. It does not mean copacetic city it is a laborious hard narrow way that we are on but if that's what you are experiencing if that's what's in your life it's a good indicator that you have 20-20 vision but there's another diagnosis as well he says those who lack these things are short-sighted even to blindness. Those that don't have 20-20 vision are blind. And they have forgotten that they have been cleansed from their old sin. Blindness is a terrible thing. I experienced blindness in one eye for about a year. I can't imagine what it would have been like without two eyes. I was able to get it fixed. Elisha's servant, as we read, had his eyes open. He, was, he could see, but he was still blind. And then I love the story where Elisha's servant gets to see more, and then Elisha asks for blindness on the Syrians. And then treats them well in the end. 
Jesus heals the man born blind. Right? The question is, what, what did his parents do to, so bad that this man had to be born blind? And God just didn't say, Jesus didn't just say, let there be sight. He touched him and then said, go to the pool. Why did he make him find his way to the pool while he was still blind? Why would he be so unkind to do that? That seems harsh. Here, I'll fix things up here for you, and then you've got to find your way to the pool. But that's God's way of demonstrating his power. That's the way he's brought glory. That there's a faith that is shown and demonstrated by obedience to what Christ asks us and tells us to do. Hebrews 10 reminds us that if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. If we have seen Christ and experienced him and turn away. Remember the churches in Revelation? We read about Ephesus. They were still commended for their faithfulness. But he said they had lost their first love. And oftentimes that's the first step of this no longer having a clear vision of Christ. We lose our first love. But it's when you get to the church of Laodicea in chapter 3 that you see the real effects of that. What was their commendation? They, Christ did not commend them for anything. He could not think of one thing to say, you're doing a good job here. He, he goes right to his concern and says, you are lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. As in chapter 15 of John, he cut off those branches that did not produce fruit. As in 2 Peter chapter 1, he is going, they are blind and lost if they don't keep their vision clear. In Revelation, they are going to be spit out. In Matthew, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Christ will say in the end, depart from me, I have not known you. If our prognosis is blindness, we need to understand the dire, dire situation that lies before us. But even the church of Laodicea received a promise from Christ. Both churches, all churches received this promise to the one who conquers this I promise. For the Ephesians, it was to eat with him. And for the Laodiceans, if they would conquer, if they would listen to his voice, open the door and obey, they would reign, they would sit on the throne. So even though there was nothing to commend the Laodiceans for, there was a promise to give them hope. And so that is our promise. That is back in 2 Peter, in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. No, don't be mistaken. Salvation is by faith alone. God gives us the faith by his grace. 
But once again, James reminds us, if that's the grace and faith he gives us, it will produce works. We must care for others. We must provide for others. Paul reminds the Philippians that we need to work out the salvation by, with fear and trembling. It's a trepidous journey. It's not an easy road. We will not earn our salvation through our works. But it will be the fruit of our salvation as we travel along the path of righteousness. And how does that happen? It's through obedience. For if you do these things, verse 10, if you do these things, you will never stumble. That's what John writes in his small epistle, his second epistle. And this is love. How do we know love? Because I hug somebody, right? Because I send them cards, I send them flowers, I give them chocolate. We celebrate, we have date night. Those are all fun, wonderful things. But God says love is this, that we walk in obedience to the commands of Christ. That's where Adam and Eve failed in the garden. When God gives his ten commandments, that's part of the promise to children. If you obey your parents, you will live long on the earth. We see it as the Israelites are standing at the promised land. They fail to obey and believe God. And at Mount Ebal and Gerizim, when they finally get into the promised land, they're told, if you obey me, great blessing. If you disobey me, there will be curse. God is clear about these things. He does not mix words. He does not hide it under a bush. He does not give us some enigma to try to figure out. He clearly says, This is how you see Christ. This is the life that demonstrates that I am in you. And this is the life that doesn't. And for those that persevere, for those that obey and are blessed, Paul or Peter reminds them that an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, what great hope that gives. To know that even in the midst of trial and struggle and hard days and days, weeks of death and and weeks of uh, discouragement, that as I continue to see clearly who Christ is and see the fruit of the Spirit produced in our lives, that is the hope within us by His Spirit that we will see Him face to face. Someday. So as the world is looking for answers, the world around us is looking for peace. They are looking for love. They are looking for safety. And they're looking in all the wrong places. But we are called to know Christ, who is the answer. And what does He call us to do? He calls us to be diligent. He calls us to live out the faith that he has given us. He calls us to work out our salvation through obedience. And he calls us to enjoy knowing Christ right now. We might have to say that had I gone to the bank and gotten that million bucks, I probably would have smiled and told people about it. And I probably would have done that more than a couple of minutes or a couple of days. 
And I probably would have enjoyed life for a while. We have more than a million bucks in our bank account. We have the presence of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Every day. He is here with us. May we be faithful. May we be diligent to add to our faith. Those things would bring hope so that we can love our Lord and know him and demonstrate that love to those around us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's pray. Lord God, these are those words that are often easy to say and really, really hard, really difficult to do. And we sit here and, and we're like, yeah, that's right. That, that's, that's what I should do. And then we hit Monday <laughs> and things aren't going right at work. Or I get a call about someone who's passed or a severe illness, and we thoughts, questions come into our mind, or someone just doesn't agree with me and causes me to get upset. Lord, I pray that like Stephen, we would keep our vision, our acuity clear as we keep our eyes fixed on Christ. And by your spirit, believe that these are your precious promises and that you will bring them about. And Christ is our Savior who reigns on his throne and lives within us each day. And we conclude as our Lord has told us to Not too long from now, many of us will be exercising one of the rights we have as Americans. We will be casting votes to elect our leaders. The right to choose those who will lead us is one of the many that were established by the founding fathers of our nation. And in the decades that followed, there were countless men and even women who lost their lives defending these freedoms. It is proper then for us to honor them, for us to celebrate our liberties and to exercise the rights that we have been given. But there is a far greater freedom we as followers of Jesus Christ have been given. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul encourages the believers to stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. In his death and resurrection, Jesus secured for us a freedom of the highest degree. He freed us from our slavery to sin. He freed us from the burden of God's holy law. He freed us from God's wrath and the eternal condemnation that we deserved. And with that freedom has come precious rights and privileges. You, dear Christian, because of your Savior, have the right to God's holy word. Scripture is a never-failing treasury filled with boundless stores of grace and promises. It is the bank of heaven, and you can draw from it as much as you please. You, dear Christian, because of your Savior, have the privilege to access your Heavenly Father at all times. Whatever your desires, your difficulties, your needs, or your sins, you are at liberty to lay them all before him, and you have the assurance that he will hear and act and forgive. You, dear Christian, because of your Savior, 
have the privilege to partake of this meal. Jesus has given himself for you and therefore has freed you to partake of him, to dine with him and to be at his table. You are a welcome guest and it is here that we celebrate and stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. So come, dear Christian, and exercise the precious freedom the Lord has given to you. Christ's body broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.